welcome to a brand new episode of the Swamp Flicks podcast. And welcome to hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's spooky season. My name is Brandon. And this is Boomer. And we are recording in Louisiana and in Texas. And in hell. And in hell. <laughs> Which, I mean, you're alive right now. You've seen what the world's like. It is hell. Just go to your window and look out. <laughs> and if you don't have a window, guess what? <laughs> you're still in hell. One of my favorite album titles of all time was uh, Bad Religion in the 80s had this record called How Could Hell Be Any Worse, which is a phrase that just runs through my head all the time, particularly lately. Have you voted, everyone? Have you voted? Will it matter? We'll see, but go vote anyway. (laughs) Early voting started today in New Orleans, and the pictures I saw from friends were miles long, Uh, so I, I might vote on day, personally. I... Went and voted on the second day of early voting here in Texas, which was Wednesday, two days ago. And I got to the polling location at 6.30, about half an hour before the polls opened. That's 6.30 a.m., a time I have not seen in a very long time. (laughs) And I was about the sixth person in line. And by the time the doors opened at 7, the line had grown to, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and 1,000 people. I'm really bad at judging the size of crowds. It's a weakness of mine. But at least 50, possibly 100. And then when I left, it was, again, long. So it's good to see so many people um, exercising the right to vote while they still can. Yeah, I'm hoping this is a sign of enthusiasm and not a sign of like voter intimidation. It's a little bit of both. It certainly is an intentional act in order to... I mean, the fact that people are having to stand in line for six, seven, eight hours is a factor of voter suppression. But it is also very heartening that people are standing in line for six, seven, eight hours and not giving up. So it's a little bit of good, a little bit of bad, like uh, like the movie that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, yeah, this is kind of a mixed bag episode. But we're talking about a horror anthology, which I think that's just kind of part of the genre in some ways. Yeah. Well, have you been watching any other movies besides our main topic film? So I did recently watch um, a movie, MILF. It's a French film in which three women go and rent a house and get into shenanigans with good-looking guys on an island. There's not really a whole lot more to it than that. Um, I also watched American Murder, The Family Next Door, which is apparently the number four movie on Netflix in the U.S. right now about a woman named Shanann Watts, uh, who disappeared and ended up murdered while she was pregnant um, along with her two daughters on the way that suspicion initially and eventually falls upon her husband. And what was particularly fascinating about it, and this might actually be something that appeals to you, is it's comprised pretty extensively of footage that was shot by the victim herself. She had a very You know, she wasn't someone who necessarily had a huge following online, but like a lot of people, most of her life ended up on social media pretty extensively. And it's directed by Jenny Popowell. And there is something that's very strange about watching all of this home video footage. You know, when I was a kid growing up, you would see like these things like this would come on 2020 all the time, and there would be five, ten minutes of a person's personal life having been captured on video because it was pretty uncommon then that people really like documented the entirety of their lives. But this was a person who was a a complete self-documenter. So there's a lot of footage of her um, that was shot by her which I found to be pretty fascinating. Yeah, James and Brittany actually talked about it on the last episode, and that's what James in particular was saying, like, this seems like the future of true crime media, like the fact that we are providing so much, like, raw footage of our lives to be, like, remixed. Yeah. And, like, how morbid it is that that stuff is usually, like, kind of disposable media until something horrific happens to you. Uh, <sighs> chilling thought. I don't watch true crime stuff, though. I don't go out of my way to watch it because I do find that stuff disturbing. I think that's kind of you and me locked in the eternal struggle of like, (laughs) should horror be fantastic or should it be something that could actually happen to you? Where I guess true crime for me, it's not something that I partake of 
you know, I'm not starting my own true crime podcast or anything like that. I listened to Serial years after it was made. I'm not really on the ball with it. But true crime is something that I was a lot more fascinated by when I was a teenager. Because when I was a kid, I really, uh, not a kid, but when I was a middle schooler into my early teen years, I was really into the idea of becoming a forensic scientist. Like I think a lot of kids who came of age during the CSI era (laughs) did. Um, So I got really into that in my youth and then kind of got away from it. And now I only dabble on occasion. Uh, But I found this one pretty interesting, like I said, just because of the amount of footage that existed. Yeah. To me, that's something that could actually happen. You know, the terror comes from the fact that it really is people that you know, and kind of circles back on my own, like, horror ideology which is you know to what extent has the suppression of rational explanations for horrific things in our media contributed to a mistrust of empirical data and the truth is most people are more likely to be murdered by someone they know they're more likely to be assaulted in other ways by people that they know and our media really reflects that like things just happen out of nowhere you know you might be kidnapped off the street by a stranger but in reality that's much less common than the true horrors that are living at home yeah i think it's like statistics like that that keep me away from it um (laughs) it's like way too depressing and i don't know it sounded kind of like this one is very interested in the victim's life and her like inner life but usually a lot of it feels very exploitative and like more obsessive over like the details of the killer and the circumstances of the the actual crime. I don't know. Well, have no fear and rest assured. This one is exploitative. Okay. <laughs> let there not, let there not be any, uh, you know, lack of understanding about that. It is clearly exploitative, but I think I get my, uh, that domestic threat kick more from like over the top stuff, like the stepfather or whatever. Oh, uh, the original <laughs> or the, pen oh, the original of course, remake. The remake. I did rewatch the Pin Badgley or watch for the first time the Pin Badgley remake during quarantine. It feels like it was yesterday, but I think it was probably back in April because we live in a timeless ever now. And I was shocked both by how bad it was and how much it seemed to presage Pin Badgley's role on the television show You, where essentially he has become the stepfather. I don't know <laughs> if you're familiar with this program, but they feel like they exist within the same cinematic universe. (laughs) What have you been watching? I completed my Halloween project early. I was trying to clear out this like stack of like Blu-rays and DVDs that I've bought over the past year. And I already went through all dozen of them. They're all gone (laughs) or at least they've all been watched now. And towards the end, I hit two really good ones. I finally watched the descent from 2005 for the first time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which, I, I mean, I don't have much to add to that conversation. Other than that, it's good. And that uh, I had like a mild moment of panic when it asked me if I wanted to watch the R-rated American cut or the unrated European cut, uh, which always feels like diffusing a bomb. Like, how much do I want to Google what the difference is? I know that people care about the difference in the endings, but I didn't really remember which one was preferable. Now I get it. There's barely any difference between the two movies, except there's a minute longer ending in the unrated cut, quote unquote, uh, that the American one just cuts short for no reason whatsoever. Um, has nothing to do with gore, or, like excessive violence or anything. Yeah, I don't believe that I knew there was a difference between the versions. Um, although I, I am going to go ahead and leave the joke about uncut Europeans and cut Americans <laughs> on the floor for anybody who wants to pick that up. Um, I'm trying to get right with Jesus. So we'll see. We'll leave that for someone else. There's no fruit too low, honestly. Um, <laughs> but um, tish. <laughs> that was the worst that um, tish I might have ever made. Well, if you haven't seen The Descent, I'll just put it out there one more time in case you need to hear it. The longer version, it's only 70 seconds longer, and it's a much better movie for it. So watch that one. 70 seconds can make a lot of difference when... I don't know. I'm going to, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to take that one either. I got to get, I got to get right. I need Jesus in my life. Well, we are in hell. Yeah. I I guess there's no hope. 70 seconds is great. It gives you time to finish. (laughs) I'm glad that you find that you landed there eventually. Uh, 
And I watched for the first time the 1963 The Haunting, the Shirley oh. Jackson adaptation of Hill House. What did you think? Uh, it's a masterpiece. I don't know that I've ever seen a scarier G-rated horror film in my entire life. There aren't a lot of like on-screen visual manifestations of ghosts, really. Like some walls move and the camera maybe like warps your vision a few times and there's like some spooky sounds, but it's largely a like visual scare free film. Right. But it also is like incredibly creepy. It's exquisitely shot in like Panavision. It's got this really wide um, aspect ratio, but the camera is like tumbling down the stairs and swooping around the house and like using these like extreme fish eye lenses to like drink in every detail of these like overly decorated rooms in this like old dark house setting. And the main character is this like nervous, difficult woman and you get a lot of internal monologues from her. So it reminded me a lot of like carnival of souls and the first half of psycho in particular. And then there's also like a lesbian character that's trying to woo her the entire time. Yeah. And the movie's like very open about that for a 1960s film. Right. And I don't know, just everything came together. We're like, as soon as like 10 minutes into this, into it, I was like, is this a masterpiece? And I just never lost that like excitement. Um, and I'm still buzzing off of it like a week later. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I'm a big fan. The most recent time I saw it, it was actually on television over uh, an antenna. And I was so annoyed that it kept being interrupted by commercials. And also it was in some sort of weird motion smoothing not on my television but like from whatever station it was being broadcast from that i had to turn it off i am interested to hear your thoughts if you have any on the 90s remake i looked it up on letterboxd and i did not see any takes on it that made me want to see it like nothing about it looked particularly exciting but i could be convinced well you're not going to be convinced by me i'm not i'm not going to be the person who carries water for that film other than to say it does feature queer icons Catherine Zeta-Jones and Lily Taylor. Lily Taylor is like the Meryl Streep for gays whose Stevie Nicks is Jenny Lewis. I can't explain <laughs> that other than to say that it's true. So, you know, if you're ever just doing like a Lily Taylor marathon, which I've done a couple of times, you're definitely <laughs> going to want to catch it, but don't expect it to live up to any expectations other than like, oh, oh yeah, the CGI is bad. Our level of, 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 of susceptibility to horror images is changing. I mean, there's more horror on the news than there ever used to be. You can go to... Uh, uh, you know, YouTube, and you can, you know, dial up any number of horrors. Uh, so it's it's important that fictional horror, I think, be as uh, intense and extreme as it can be. All right. So the movie that I had not seen but asked if we could watch for this podcast was the recently released 2020 Books of Blood. Uh, it was previously sort of made, uh, a version of it was made in 2009, which just adapted the framing device of the Books of Blood short story collection as a single story. And of course, various other individual stories within the Books of Blood have been made into their own films uh, in the past, like Midnight Meat Train and Dread. The reason that I wanted to talk about this one is I am a moderately uh, engaged Clive Barker fan. And also this film is the feature-length directorial debut by a man named Brandon Braga. Uh, Brandon, before you saw this, had you ever heard that name before? No, but I Googled it when you suggested this film. I clicked on his IMDb profile and was like, oh, I see what's going on here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty puzzling to me that Brandon Braga, of all people, who, for the uninitiated, got his start in his mid-20s as a staff writer on... Da-da-da-da-da-da! Here's an, it's, it's me, Star Trek The Next Generation. 
Does this need its own like theme song every time like Star Trek gets mentioned? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should. What's funny is when drop. you mentioned having seen, having watched The Haunting, I was thinking about the fact that I was already planning to bring up Shirley Jackson later in this conversation. So this is just the Star Trek and Shirley Jackson podcast now, <laughs> um, I guess. But Brandon Braga is often widely considered to be one of the contributing factors to the decline of the Star Trek franchise as a brand. Um, Getting his start in the early 90s, in his mid-20s, on Star Trek TNG, and then eventually becoming a showrunner on Voyager, which has received a pretty positive critical reevaluation in recent years, but which was not super widely beloved during the time that it was on air. And then he also went on to be one of the co-executive producers and showrunners on Star Trek Enterprise, which ran from 2001 to 2005 and really kind of uh, killed off the Star Trek franchise for about four years until the J.J. Abrams reboot killed off Star Trek as a television medium for 13 years until Star Trek Discovery premiered in 2017. Brandon himself wrote a third of the episodes of Enterprise. Enterprise has not undergone a positive critical reevaluation in recent years, and I don't believe uh, that it ever will. I myself recently only watched it all the way through for the first time. Me, a Star Trek superfan, finally during quarantine forced myself to get all the way through it, and boy, was it something. Harsh. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, sorry, I got to get back on track because if I go off on a Star Trek <laughs> tangent, we'll be here all night. Uh, Brandon Braga, the first directing credit that he has on IMDb is for a Marilyn Manson music video. I don't know if you noticed that while you were giving it a shot or giving it a look-see. I did. It jumped out at me because this movie that we're watching ended on a Marilyn Manson needle drop. And started on one, which was the moment when I was like, oh boy. Oh no. So when I, I went and looked at his IMDb page and saw that, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I guess that makes sense. I guess before we, we do a full or a even partial plot synopsis, what was your familiarity with Clive Barker before getting started on watching this film? I kind of know him as like a Wes Craven type, like intellectual horror creator, like an academically minded, like, talented writer who conceives of disturbing imaginative horror like very far from the kind of like realistic stuff you were talking about with american murderer it's like cerebral intensely erotic Mm -hmm. and not for nothing like one of the only like major gay contributors to the canon but to my shame i had never actually read his words like i had seen you know like the Hellraiser movies and Nightbreed and Candyman. Obviously, we just covered that last episode. If nothing else from today, though, I, I did borrow the um, Books of Blood. I think the first like five or six volumes from the library this week. So I've been reading like a story a day from Clive Barker in the past week. So between watching this movie and like reading a story a day, I have more familiarity with him as a writer now than I did before we chose this episode topic. Huh, okay. So I guess I read my first Clive Barker about 17 years ago now. Whenever I was at boarding school, one of the upperclassmen loaned me a copy of Abarat, which was the first book, and at the time, the only book in a four-part series that he's writing for young adults. And it features a girl named Candy Quackenbush, who ends up on uh, this... um, Adventure through an alternate universe, a Narnia-type place, an Oz-type place, but which is peopled by and characterized by the same sort of bizarre people and bizarre creatures and bizarre ideas that would normally populate Clive Barker's more adult works, which I would read later in life, to the point where, in fact, some of his novels I've read, and I was like, oh my gosh, is he just writing the same novel over and over again? <laughs> like, there are parallels between Aberat, Everville, and what he considers to be his magnum opus, a magica, that are pretty hard not to notice. I hit that wall with Neil Gaiman myself. After, like, three novels, I was like, oh, this is the same down-the-rabbit-hole 
structure over and over and over again. I don't know how people keep coming back to this. Well, what's funny, what's interesting to me is you, you described Clive Barker as intellectual and even maybe even academic, which isn't something that I would have ever thought to ascribe to him until now. And in fact, if I were to say there is a straight Clive Barker, it would be Neil Gaiman, which I guess does make him technically academic because he is drawing, they're both Englishmen, they're of about the same age, and they're both drawing from the same Western canon and reinventing it in certain ways. I will say that you and I don't always align with regards to how much sex or eroticism we want in our media that we consume. Uh, Would you say that that's a fair statement? Yes, that is very fair. I want everything to be incredibly horny. Right. And (laughs) I don't always, and I have, you know, I'm not a prude, but, you know, from my perspective, there doesn't necessarily need to be horniness or eroticism in every work. I think for me, some of the barriers are trying to introduce people who are opposed or have like a block against eroticism, sexuality in a work and trying to expose them to what I consider to be great art and running up against, you know, that wall and being like, no, I really want to share this with you, but I can't because you won't tolerate a certain amount of this. And I also think that it's important for us to recognize that like part of progressive sex positivity is also recognizing that not everything has to have that in the same way. Yeah. I mean, there's other people where it's not even a bear. They're just like disinterested in it. And that's its own sexuality in its own way. Yeah. And, you know, one in four women will be assaulted. One in four American women have been assaulted in their lifetimes. And it's important to recognize that like there are elements of sex positivity that almost go all the way around and become toxic again, where it's like, you know, people shouldn't have to have this in every form of media Although I get where you're coming from, where you want everything to be horny. And I'm like, "Mm, you know, the art doesn't have to be horny, but I'll enjoy it anyway. And when it's horny, it's horny. This was a very sexless movie. And I was not happy about it. Especially for a Clive Barker adaptation. Especially for a Clive Barker adaptation. Because to me, the horniness, the eroticism, the sexuality should be there whenever it is plot relevant or it's representing some facet of the creator. Hellraiser is a movie that's deeply gory, but also like deeply, deeply erotic. Not in a way that would necessarily make the audience aroused, but in the most literal sense, it is an erotic film. That one and Candyman in particular, I think, have this like allure to them, which is like my favorite kind of erotic content is like being attracted to something that you know is lethal and will kill you. But that compulsion to like, I mean, you've described this as I've babbled on about it as like moth to flame, I guess is like the quickest way to say it. But like that compulsion to to keep coming back to something that you know is terrible for your body and your soul, uh, but you're still like drawn to it anyway. Like that is the best shit to me. And that's something he built a lot of his, career around i think you're i mean you're absolutely correct and it's important to recognize that the greatest parts of his body of work were created in the mid to late 80s and early 90s the things that people know him for imagica hellraiser and of course the hellbound heart the novella that it's based on the books of blood um, they were all published in the early 90s and late 80s the film adaptations of his that have gained some notoriety. I mean, people might know the Midnight Meat Train, but if you ask people, have you heard of Midnight Meat Train or Hellraiser, you're going to get a lot more uh, responses of Hellraiser. It had just much more cultural penetration, no pun intended. (laughs) And in this house, we believe in Roland Barthes and that the author is dead, right? But at the same time, it's almost impossible to completely separate Barker's work from the AIDS crisis, where sex is something that is alluring and compulsive and demanding and innate and human and raw and gross, but also incredibly dangerous. And to create an adaptation of his work that is completely sexless as this film is feels disrespectful. 
Yeah, I mean, like, it does maintain from the titular wraparound type story that a woman is attracted to a younger man and, like, fondles his body. But he is so, like, perfectly, like, gym body beefcake that it's almost not sexy. Like, there's, like, it's, it's inhuman, almost. And, like, when she has sex with him or, like, gr- grasps his body, it's like a fleeting image and then it's gone there's no like lingering on that temptation i guess yeah and then later when sort of jumping into the plot more than i should but like later when his body is being violated by these ghosts who are like riding on his skin um in the short story that i read this week they're like riding on his genitals and like it's described as a kind of rape in the text but watching it in the film he's got like a ken doll crotch and there's nothing erotic about it. And it, it's just a thing that happens. And it's it's horrific because you're watching like words get carved into flesh, but none of that sensuality or that violation really comes across in the imagery at all. It's just like shock value with no significance to it. Uh, I will say that at least in the version that I saw, and maybe, I mean, I don't know if it was edited or maybe there was just some sort of shadow. There was a point where while he is experiencing the writings of the dead, that there is frontal male nudity. Oh, maybe I just blanked that out for some reason. It felt so flat. <laughs> I just didn't even notice that. It was the only moment that really drew me in where I was like, this is some Barker shit. Like, this is what I thought I would be getting when I saw the title, Books of Blood. The story Revelations in Books of Blood 4, also known as The Inhuman Condition, is one of my favorite ghost stories of all time. And in the trailer for Books of Blood, there's a moment where the lady protagonist of what we'll, I guess we'll call the first vignette notices a fly crawling out of a wall. And I got so excited because I was like, oh, is this, is this an adaptation of Revelations? And then there's a shot in the trailer of what we'll call the second vignette, the one that you were talking about where this gym body buff guy is in a room that's purely white uh, for what appears to be some kind of experiment, which I thought was going to be an adaptation of the short story Age of Desire, which is from that same short story collection and which is, I think, one of Barker's shortest but most powerful pieces. It's about a man who was experimented on by this like private lab that's trying to develop basically an aphrodisiac and it goes horribly right where it's just too powerful where this young man becomes just this like being of lust this like you know lust made flesh like this fucking monstrous fuck beast where he escapes from the lab and Everything turns him on, even like the gaps between bricks and walls, where he wants to fuck the gap between bricks and walls until until he like flays the skin from his dick. And that to me is like quintessential Clive Barker shit. And it's nowhere in this movie. No, no. Not at all. So, you know, I wanted us to watch it. I'm glad that we have watched it. And there were moments that I certainly enjoyed, but it's not the film I thought it was going to be when I asked if we could watch it to discuss it. I think notably, too, it's not even really a direct adaptation of much from the books. Like, nope. The, like, writing on skin story is the titular, like, Books of Blood. It's like an intro piece, like meeting the Crypt Keeper at the top of, like, a Tales from the Crypt It's episode. the wraparound story. Exactly. So that's directly adapted to the screen here. And then everything else is kind of like touching on little images and motifs from Clive Barker stories, but there's no other direct adaptations to the screen from what I could tell. No. Mm -mm. Including one that's like 50 minutes long and is like most of the runtime. The wraparound story that Brandon is alluding to is the titular Books of Blood doesn't actually kick off until about halfway through. Uh, The film opens with us looking at a person who has words carved all over his body 
and then we get into a close-up and we see the name Jenna. And we spend the first half of that of the film's runtime. Well, I guess we're skipping the very short intro segment where a bookseller begs for his life before telling an assa- uh, some sort of hitman about the location of the books of blood. And then there's also a title card explaining that the dead have highways to the world. And then there's also a credit sequence. Like there's so many like multiple levels of like introduction before we even get to that story. It's exhausting. That's a Brandon Braga (laughs) trademark. Actually, I won't go on another Star Trek tangent, but if you know, you know, that's, that's a thing that he does. Yeah, there's also the on-screen text that's like, in 1984, the Books of Blood were published. And in their spirit, we present this film. It's like, and the stories are adapted in this film. They couldn't make that claim because they're not. Right. Yeah, Jenna is this young woman who, she has some sort of dark secret that happened while she was away at college. She's now back home with her mother and her stepfather in this gorgeous seaside modern home she decides to run away uh she has like a weird sense of uh i forget the word that they use or the word that the actual psychological compulsion but she can't stand the sound of people eating and many sounds in general and she ends up at the airbnb from hell and then she you know fights her way out sort of final girl style which is not a clive barker story um and then ostensibly dies and then we go into our second story which in the literary versions of the books of blood are the wraparound stories of the books which is about a woman named mary played in this film by anna friel who i guess most people if they know her would know her as chuck from pushing daisies oh i didn't know that yeah yeah now i see it yeah uh, uh, essentially she is a debunker of the paranormal she meets a man named simon who seems to know things that only her recently deceased son could possibly know and then she really comes to believe in him finds out that he is in fact just a con man and had been using knowledge he learned in aa from her ex-husband in order to get close to her. And then she ends up being contacted by the dead on their highways who exact vengeance upon him in her name. And then the third vignette is actually the first vignette come round again, which also, there were a couple of little points of crossover, but at that point, you've already watched 75% of the film there's not a lot of time left and and what is left isn't very interesting. I can barely tell you what happened in that third vignette. There's a lot of legwork for connective tissue that doesn't really do much thematically or anything. It's just so you can see like, Oh, they were in the same town at the same time. Oh yeah. She almost got hit by that car from the wraparound story. I was a bit confused once we started to head into the third story where they're headed to Ravenmore, Bennett and his uh, fellow hitman friend they're headed into Ravenmoor, which is where the Books of Blood are located. Her friend, his friend is like, oh, you know, like basically a paranormal Chernobyl happened there. And they eventually arrive at the house from the second vignette where Mary and the now completely scarred but still covered in the Books of Blood, Simon, are still in residence. And I will say the middle sequence, which is the only one that is a Clive Barker adaptation in actuality – has the only imagery which feels like it's some Barker shit also is the only one that feels like a Clive Barker work also in the sense that it's set in the nineties, which you're a little bit confused at first because you start with this modern day story and then you go into what could easily be a present day um, vignette, but we learn, Oh, you know, she talks about how her son recently died. She goes to his graveside and it, you know, he it says like 1987 to 1994 or something and you realize okay so this is the mid 90s and again that's the only thing that feels like clive barker as well as clive barker is really a man of the mid 90s his major works all come from that time period Uh, so you you as sort of a recent inductee or introductee to barker's work 
Was there anything else that you really didn't like about this one other than its sexlessness? That I didn't like? Did not like, yeah. Oh, man. Most of it? (laughs) Okay, this is what I'll say. I think just sort of like cover what I have negative to say about this is that this does not feel like a bad movie. It feels like mediocre television. It's extreme and like in your face with its gore, but it's also extremely made for TV Hmm, and disposable in a way that feels like an audition for one of these to come out every Halloween indefinitely and just pull like one or two more stories with some made up connective tissue every year. It reminded me a lot of masters of horror in that way, which, you know, some episodes of that show are, are good and most of them are not uh, some varying of quality. There were moments of this that I enjoyed even, even in that like completely made up hour long um, story about the hospice Airbnb that the uh, teen girl stays at. I think there were some really cool ideas in that segment and that's, you know, completely original to this film. So I don't want to say it's like completely devoid of like anything worthwhile. It just, I don't even know how to describe the quality. It's like, like the old pornography adage. Like I know it when I see it, Yeah. like this just feels like television. The only way I can maybe try to put it into words is saying that it's not about atmosphere or the poetry of the horror or the sensuality or the experience of it. It's about plot points. It's a very, and then this happened and then this happened and this happened without like dwelling on the feeling or the dread or like the sensuality of it in any way. It's just like very machine, like plotty, basically like a television writer's room where people like pitch plot points and how to connect things. And I could practically see them moving the index cards around like, Oh, and then he went to the same coffee shop that she went to in this small town. And that's how those two pieces are connected. Like it just felt very made for television. It feels a little bit cheap for lack of a better term. What you're describing as like a stations of the plot, like you follow the stations of the canon when you're watching like a passion play the stations of the plot are something that permeate a lot of Braga's Star Trek work. And he's known within the fandom for crafting episodes that are actually pretty interesting because he is like a television minded person. He knows how to stretch those particular boundaries, but especially someone who's really good at doing my, what they call mind screw episodes where you're like, oh, is this what's really happening? Who's getting their mind played by whom in this episode? Is the holographic doctor really the doctor? Is he really a real man and everyone else is a hologram? Oh, you know, Picard and Data take a shuttlecraft out, you know, to check something out. When they come back, everybody's devolved into cavemen and spiders. And then they have to figure out what happened. That's a, that's a Brandon Braga staple. And it does not necessarily work when applied to the horror genre, films as opposed to television. And especially in the sense that this, it's so uneven in its focus, where that first vignette takes up over half of the runtime and everything else is kind of left scrambling. If this were a more balanced film, it would actually be better, where if there was maybe 10, 15 minutes less of Jenna's story and a little bit more somewhere else, but then where that would end up is in that wraparound story, which is really the weakest of the three, not just because of its brevity, but because of its like narrative. You know what shocked me was that most of all, just that the Jenna story is not in Barker's books, because it felt like that's really the story this movie wanted to tell. Yeah. What's really interesting to me too, like another way this feels like television is that when we come back to her story after she like assumedly dies and then she like wakes up in the hospital later, two things happen. One, um, we figure out what happened with the backstory of her boyfriend and that felt extremely like made for TV. It was like a rip from the headlines, honestly pissed me off direct from a real life newspaper story about this girl who like bullied her boyfriend over the phone into killing himself. I thought that was extremely gross. And then she like returns to the Airbnb hospice prison and willingly submits to it. And that felt very Clive Barker. I thought like the fact that she was kind of drawn there and like kind of submits to it. The only problem there is that 
so many things have happened and so much legwork has been put elsewhere where like I kind of lost interest in that story and where it was going by the time we got to that point that like it didn't really have much of an impact but I at least thought that was an interesting idea that she would like kind of submit to the pain and the like torment I don't know that felt at least kind of true to the the spirit of the text it's strange because like the success of Clive Barker's work is generally in the universality of sexuality like give or take asexuality arousal orgasm it's something that we all experience in some way and although that is gone there is something that speaks to sort of the idiosyncrasies of people in jenna's chewing problem like her problem with the sound of chewing I wouldn't say that everybody experiences it the same way that she does, but there is something really gross about mouth noises. And even though it's not a universal sensitivity, it's something that you actually understand about her, where you're like, okay, I get this. I understand why she hates these mouth noises, because they are gross. Yeah, I like to play TV or music when I'm eating next to somebody because I, I can't not focus on it if there's nothing else going on. So you get that. So it spoke to yep. you. It's just, it's strange that there's not, it doesn't seem like that's connected to her dark secret at all. Yeah, it's just like more story and more, like they could have cut out that detail or cut out the suicide background like whittle it down and let things breathe instead of having to get to all this stuff and all this connective tissue for any of it to land with any kind of like in the moment impact. There'd have to be like way less of everything, which the irony of that is I think short stories in general are great material for film because if you pull like a germ of an idea for a story and you adapt that to a feature film, you have all this room for like personal and interpretation as an artist, but also just like for atmosphere and like let things sink in. Whereas if you watch an adaptation of a novel, usually they're cramming in so much plot that it's like overwhelming or they have to abandon like a large part of it. And people get like angry about what they skipped over because it's impossible to fit it all. So like, it does not surprise me that most of like Clive Barker's best adapted the screen works are things that were like short stories that people then like extrapolated on. So it's almost like self-defeating to try to do multiple of those in one movie. Cause he'll say in like a paragraph or a sentence, even sometimes like 20 minutes worth of like movie plot. Yeah. Uh, so like to have to cover all that here is like exhausting. I'm not opposed to the idea of a series of vignette films or even a vignette film of just a few books of blood, but I completely understand where you're coming from and that I will say when they attempted to adapt just the wraparound story as book of blood in 2009, there's nothing truly special about it in the way that there's something special about Hellraiser, which was, I guess, a novella. So it kind of falls in between the two on that spectrum. But all that being said, I didn't actually hate this. I was a little bit bored by it and I wished that it was better but there were a lot of things in it that I still really enjoyed. And I did want to talk about those. But before I do, what did you like? I liked the reveal of what's really going on at the Airbnb. Like, that's a creepy idea. I think it was delayed a little bit longer than I really... I was getting kind of impatient for the answer to the question. But I thought that worked really well. And, you know... Not for nothing, like, the images when they do get gross are disgusting. It is a, an extreme horror film in its own way. The writing on the flesh is gruesome. It reminded me a lot of that, like, flesh cinnamon bun roll uh, from Suicide Club. <laughs> I thought about that as well. So gross. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I like that it doesn't pull punches. And I like, you know, I'm a, I'm a horror nerd. I like that this stuff does get made on a regular annual basis like there's a whole industry of just people churning out this kind of material all the time and it is like kind of a spoiled brat position to be in where i can be like well this isn't like poetry or art the way i want it to be i want this like better version of it that i found elsewhere like i have a wealth of things to choose from and i like that there's still like over the plate mainstream anthology horrors being made every year to like fill halloween dockets and i like that this version of that is gross 
especially the Airbnb reveal I thought was like especially gnarly um, and imaginative. It's strange because when you first meet this couple, they're too sweet to be true. And you're just waiting for that other shoe to fall. And one of the few virtues of the length of that vignette is you do get to a point where you're like, yeah, they're, they are too sweet and they are too creepy. But you get accustomed to it where you kind of forget that you're waiting for the reveal. Yeah, and the reveal is true to that kind, nurturing quality to them. It's not like a light switch is flipped and then all of a sudden they're like, we're going to kill you. Yeah. Like they're they're trying to like welcome her into the home and become a literal part of their home. You know, at least it's consistent to the scenario. It's not just like a surprise for its own sake. And like I said earlier, I really like that she has to willingly submit to that. I feel like that feels very true to the kinds of stories he tells to the point where I was honestly surprised this isn't part of the books. They did that part right. Maybe there's a little bit of extra fat hanging off the meat that could have been trimmed on either end of that central narrative. But There definitely could have been less with her family, which makes them seem pretty unsympathetic. Although I guess that does sort of explain how she ends up deciding to submit. I liked her sense of being followed. That felt like some real good Twilight Zone horror to me, especially because there are definitely things that she imagines while she's being followed that can't possibly have actually happened. Yeah. Most notably when uh, the person that she's running from, we eventually learn is um, not a specter or a ghost, but the father of her dead boyfriend that she convinced to commit suicide. But at one point she sees someone in the vents of the bus that she's on and it's just her imagination, but you don't know whether or not she's losing her mind. We know so little about her at that point that that felt like a really good part of it, like a really good narrative until we kind of learn more about her and it starts to drag in the middle. I also loved that that first vignette seemed to end with her death and us having no understanding of what it was that she was so that she was running from metaphorically and you know we found out what she was literally running from but metaphorically we still don't know at the end of what appears at what appears to be the end of her vignette what did she do to her boyfriend what is she running from what is she so ashamed of what won't she admit and i actually really loved that for a bit there it seemed like the movie was not going to tell us and i was like oh i love that like i don't necessarily need everything to be wrapped up in a nice neat little bow i don't need to resolve that mystery i was really enjoying sort of the abyssian horror of not finding out which is very different from the style of storytelling here where there's like so much context like it's not enough that she just arrives at this house we have to find out first like where she came from what her journey there was like like this is a movie that wants to over explain everything so like, yeah, for it to cut short like that would be like a radical shift in a storytelling style. Yeah. She didn't need to sp- steal all of that money. That film could have started with her on the bus. Right. Arriving in town, running from something without everything to do with her family. The fact that she has a ton of money in her bag is never a plot element that comes back in any important way. Uh, Vonnegut famously said, you know, one of his famous pieces of writing advice was start as close to the end as you can. And Brandon Braggett clearly didn't read that memo. I don't think it would shock you to learn that he was a showrunner on 24 at one point. (laughs) I saw that. Yeah. Uh, Which also (laughs) explains his tendency toward the stations of the story. It has to start here and end here. And we need to see the points along the way. It makes sense that he would be drawn to that show as a writer or as a creator, because it so aligns with his values his minute by minute updates on what everyone's up to and even the i don't i don't know how you felt about the like true crime connection like real life headline that that story ends on like that was the part that pissed me off about it but otherwise like i don't recall what's the headline oh there's a there's a girl i think in 2017 she was convicted for like bullying or not bullying but like coercing her boyfriend over text messages to kill himself Oh yeah, I remember that. It was like a story, Casey but. Anthony type case uh, where it was like tabloid fodder for a while, and just something about the 
pedestrian quality of doing that, like a fucking Law and Order episode, when you have like you know a writer who is so interested in these like beyond the realms of your imagination uh, influences, like that just felt really cheap to me and aggravated me. Yeah, nothing else in the movie really aggravated me. I'm, I'm. It sounds like I'm complaining a lot about something that I thought was like mostly fine. Yeah, I didn't have a particularly strong reaction to this movie outside of a few isolated images and that reveal. It's just the nature of contemporary Western discourse. <laughs> we, we instead, instead of focusing on what we liked mostly, we talk about what we don't like, unless it's something that's just absolutely glowing. I mean, you can tell that just from like every podcast in the world, most YouTube critics and Yelp. It's, you know, people don't go online and talk about the great service that they receive. They only go online to complain. And it sounds like that's what we're doing with this. And uh, to be fair, again, I know that I I am generally the most negative amongst our quintet when it comes to things that I don't like. But this was a movie that is totally fine. It's just not great. It's not what you would expect when you know you're consuming a Clive Barker product. The Clive Barker name should be kept out of its mouth. But it is very much a Brandon Braga product. And as someone, <laughs> as someone who has consumed an awful lot of the Brandon Braga product over the course of his life, it's fine. Real Braga heads out there know. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, it's on Hulu. So if you have Hulu, it's free. Um, there is a plague on. So what else are you doing? <laughs> uh, it's not a huge recommendation, but you know, you might run out of stuff eventually. And if you haven't been completely spoiled by this already, at least the middle section with Anna Friel is delightful. Well, not delightful. I mean, it's gruesome and worth watching. It doesn't really help either that we just did uh, Candyman and like one of the greatest horror anthologies of all time, Tales from the Hood, last episode. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't really help the comparison to this uh, format either. We are wrapping up the Halloween season with one more horror episode next week we're going to talk about the wild world of metal exploitation, 80s hair metal horror films which apparently there's a whole industry of those just dozens and dozens of straight to vhs schlock uh, most of what we picked is on youtube if not all of it which should be an implication of how trashy that episode's going to be and Brittany and james are like two of my bigger metalhead buddies I'm looking forward to their enthusiasm for the genre, if nothing else. Well, um, I'll also hype up one more time that we have an Instagram now. Because it's October, I've mostly been posting doodles I've done of like monsters over the years. I don't really know what I'm doing with an Instagram, but I'm kind of filling my time posting old illustrations on it. So give us a follow, and I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. And we'll talk to you all next week. Goodbye, everyone. Don't forget to vote, and I'll see you in hell. <laughs>